The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. John chapter 8, the title of my message for you this evening is Whose Child Are You? So let me set this up and start with a question. Well, it's, it's really more of an observation. Every so often... Someone will come to me, and in some way, shape, or form, they will ask me, how can I know? How can I really know for sure that I'm a Christian, that I belong to God, that I'm saved? And it's a big question, and certainly it's an important one, and one we should have a a grip on our answer of. And here's the good news. God doesn't want us spending our entire lives questioning or wondering or doubting whether we've done enough good things to get us into heaven. You can know with certainty. So let me just start with this verse. This is 1 John 5.13, and I feel like this is a word from the Lord for someone in here tonight. Will you read it with me? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. Notice the phrase that I've underlined there. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wrestle with that or question that or doubt it. It's something you can walk out of here tonight with the certainty and assurance of. And in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be considering together this evening, Jesus is going to tell us how we can know some some of those identifying characteristics that mark us out as God's children so that we can know that we know that we know that we're his. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in John chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 37. And Jesus here, mid-conversation, says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you're doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. Oh, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. And they said, we're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. All right, so we find ourselves caught in the midst of this ongoing debate. And there's a lot of back and forth here between Jesus and the religious leaders. And at the center of their heated conversation is this man by the name of Abraham. So we got to talk about Abraham. And by the way, it's impossible It would be impossible for us to overstate the impact and the influence of this one man named Abraham. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all trace their faith back to Abraham. He's the father of our faith. In fact, how many of you remember that song we would sing in Sunday school as kids? Father Abraham had many sons. You know, let's go praise the Lord right on. And you go on and on. He's the father of our faith. And that's how we know him as Christians. But for the Jews, they had a special relationship with Abraham. For you see, Abraham 
was the very first Jew. He made a covenant with God. Rather, it's more correct to say that God made a covenant with him. And God promised that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham believed God and God accounted it unto him as righteousness. And so Abraham becomes the first Jew. And every Jewish person alive today traces their lineage, their ancestry back to him. And as you might suspect, this is something that they take great pride in. But the the problem with the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that they had taken things too far. They thought that their connection to Abraham assured them of entrance into heaven. There was even a legend that was floating around at the time of Jesus where they, they believed and taught that Abraham stood just outside the gates of hell and if An angel or God perhaps accidentally sent a Jew to hell. Abraham was there to grab him and snatch him before they could get into hell and be like, oh, you missed one, but here he goes. And that's what they taught and believed. The Jews were hanging their hats on the fact that they were related to this guy. And so Jesus in this passage challenges them on that point. He says, you know, being one of Abraham's descendants is great, but it's not enough. So we're talking here about our genetic history, things that we inherit from our fathers, but Jesus is going to take that and he's going to use it to talk about a spiritual heritage. You know, we inherit so much from our parents, and science has taught us that in addition to our environment that we grow up in, one of the things that has the greatest impact on who we become is our DNA that we inherit from our parents. We've even developed sayings that reflect this fact. So we'll say, when we meet someone and we know their father, we'll say, ah, he's a chip off the old block, you know, or like father, like son. And we're saying, wow, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. You're a lot like your dad. And some of you are hearing me say that, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know, because I remind you a lot of my dad. And uh, there's, there's so many mannerisms that I have that, that are just like his. Even someone pointed out, like, when he would preach, he would roll up his sleeves like this. And I, I, I have this habit of rolling up my sleeves and, and our smile and certainly our quirky sense of humor. I, I, I got a lot of my dad in me. But what's really interesting is I have some friends who didn't know their dads all growing up. And then they met them much later on in life and were shocked to discover that even though they'd never met each other, they still had all of these common interests and, and they had all of these similar hobbies and passions. It's interesting, isn't it? And it speaks to this idea that it's in our nature to become like our fathers. Now, what's true in the physical realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. You are becoming a bit more like your father every day, which if God is your father, that's really good news. The Bible talks about how we are being actively conformed into the image of Christ. First John chapter three talks about this very thing. He says, behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And he says, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
In other words, you are in the process of becoming into increasing degrees and measures more and more like your heavenly father. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Now, Jesus' problem with the religious leaders is that while they bore a physical likeness to Abraham, they failed to reflect his spiritual DNA. So they were his physical descendants, but, but let's just admit that faith isn't one of those traits that gets passed down through bloodlines. And by the way, let that be a word of the Lord for someone in here. God doesn't have any grandchildren or great-grandchildren, only kids. And when you eventually stand before God's throne on Judgment Day, it's not going to matter who your parents were or whether or not they raised you in the church or anything like that. All that's going to matter is whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus is he's going back and forth with them on this issue of Abraham and their connection to him. Well, the religious leaders didn't like that he was attacking their heritage or insinuating that Abraham wasn't their father. And and so they got defensive and they try to attack Jesus and they say, ouch, well, we aren't born of illegitimacy. And most scholars agree that when they say that to Jesus, what they're talking about is all of the rumors that were swirling around about, you know, how Mary got knocked up by Joseph before They reached the wedding day, and so there were rumors and stories about Jesus even back then. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit and not Joseph, but they were just trying to knock Jesus and give him a low blow. And so they say, hey, look, God's our Father, and that's kind of where they land, and that's where we'll pick things up again in verse 42. So Jesus says, if God were your Father, then you'd love me, for I've come from God, and I haven't come on my own. God sent me. And why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you're demon-possessed? Jesus said, I'm not demon-possessed, but I honor the Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there's one who seeks it and he's the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. All right, so there's a lot in there for us to digest and unpack. But after claiming that God is their father, they say, okay, you're going to take Abraham for us. Hey, we belong to God. And Jesus says, well, if that's true, and if God really is your father, then there are some things that should flow out of that. There are some evidences that should be obvious. And he begins to outline the qualities and characteristics that define God's kids. You know how it is. Oftentimes, you can tell who someone's parents are, if you meet the kid, just by the physical traits, or maybe it's the laugh, or maybe it's the smile, and you can be like, hey, is your mom so-and-so, or is your dad so-and-so, and And they'll be like, yeah. And it's like the, the qualities and the characteristics of the parents can be seen in the kids. Well, the same thing ought to be true with regards to God's kids. And so these are the characteristics that define God's children. And God outlines, or Jesus outlines several of them for us here. And the first one is this. God's children 
love his son. Jesus mentions this in verse 42. Look at verse 42. Jesus said, if God were your father, then you would love me. So God's children love his son. So let me ask a question. Do you love Jesus? Somebody answer it. Not rhetorical. Somebody say it loud enough for me to hear it. Amen. Well, that's the first proof that you're a child of God. Now, notice I didn't ask if anyone in here believes that Jesus is God's son. That's a different question. I asked, do you love him? You see, even the demons believe in him. And it's not just our intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus is God's son. That's not what makes us God's child. It is our love for him. It's not about how much knowledge you can stuff into your head, but it's about how much love pours from your heart. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had plenty of head knowledge, but their hearts were cold, dark places. They may have had the whole Bible memorized, but they'd never engaged their hearts. You know, one time Jesus was approached by a group of religious scribes, and they asked him a really important question. They said, what's the most important commandment? Do you remember what Jesus said? This is from Luke 10, 27. Without even missing a beat, he quickly responded, ah, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is what God's after. He's he's after our hearts. He's after our love. So often we think that what God really wants and what what makes God happy is when we do things for him. But what he really wants and all he wants is our hearts. And notice, too, he doesn't just want part of us or part of our heart. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. And that's where the tension lies, right? Most of us have no problem giving God part of our heart. (laughs) But God has no interest in ruling and reigning part of you. He says, I will either be Lord of all or not Lord at all. But our love for God, it ebbs and it flows. Sometimes it's huge and big and expansive, and other times it retreats. There was this one time where Jesus, he wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus. It's found in the book of Revelation, and this church was doing all kinds of great works, and they were a busy church. They had a bustling ministry, and and Jesus commends them on several fronts, and then he says, but I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. He says, remember from where you've fallen and repent and go back and do again the first works. And I wonder if that might not be a prescription for someone in here today. And your love for God, it used to burn passionately and white hot, but you've left your first love. What should you do? How do you reignite a love for God that has grown cold? I know of one way that works better than any other. Let me just encourage you. You can start doing this right now. Begin to think upon and meditate on and dwell upon the immensity of God's love for you. 
His love for you is big and grand and rich and deep. It's eternal and relentless and unreserved. It's higher than the heavens and deeper than the seas. His love for you is unprovoked and undeserved and boundless. In fact, the truest thing about every person in this room tonight is that you are loved perfectly by a perfect heavenly father. And as you think upon his love for you, The automatic response is that you love him. The Bible says it like this. We love him because he first loved us. And so we need to become aware in increasing measures of how much God loves us. The only appropriate response to love so amazing, love so divine, is to give our soul, our life, our all. As Isaac Watts so beautifully put it in his song, The Wonderful Cross. So that's the first thing. God's children love his son, and I hope you love his son tonight. Let me point out the second characteristic of God's kids. Number two, God's children make room for his word. We see this in verse 37, where Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me. Why? Because you have no room for my word. God's kids make room for God's word. So let me ask you another question. Do you love the word of God? Does somebody in here love the word of God? Amen. According to Jesus, this is the second proof that you really are one of God's kids. Now notice how the religious leaders, they had no room for his word. What about you? Oftentimes people will say to me, you know, I would read my Bible more, and I want to, but I just don't have the time. I'm so busy and from morning till night and then I fall asleep and it's just like the day gets away from me. And I completely understand that and I'm not doubting that you're busy, but I'm just curious how much time do we let slip through our fingers? How much time do we spend scrolling on social media? Have you ever found yourself caught in the vortex of just the thumb, just scrolling through the endless feed? How much time have we wasted just kind of in in the black hole or the abyss of trying to watch something on Netflix or scrolling through the channels or pouring over the details of our fantasy football team? I think the point is being made. You'll agree with me. We make time for the things that are truly important to us. And oftentimes it's not evil things that pull us away from the word. It's just other things. And so we need to consciously decide, I'm going to make room, I'm going to create margin in my life so I can spend time with the word. Now, one of the reasons why we don't give more place to God's word is because I think we don't truly understand its power in our lives. Oftentimes, people will describe God's word in this way. They'll say, it's ah, it's like an instruction manual for a better life or for a holy life. And perhaps you've even heard the acronym used to describe it. The Bible is uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody heard that one? Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, here's the thing about that. I I understand what people mean, and and they're well-intentioned when they say those kinds of things. But I think that that idea of the Bible as a manual, it it falls drastically short. And here's why. I've never been inspired by a manual. (laughs) You might reference a manual 
once in a great while, in particular, if something's not working or you need to fix your car or your phone or something like that, you'll pull out the manual and you might you know, flip to page whatever, but you're not devouring it. Listen, God's word isn't just a manual, it's bread. You might reference a manual, but you rely on bread daily to sustain you. And here's something I've never heard anybody say. You know, I tried eating a while back, and it just wasn't really my thing, and so I gave up on it, you know. How many of you ate today? Praise God. Hallelujah. How many of you plan on eating tomorrow? Okay, all of you who aren't fasting, I love food. I'm looking forward to eating. And even though I can't remember what I had for breakfast last Tuesday or what I had for dinner last Wednesday, I'm thankful for it, and it fed me, and it nourished me, and it sustained me. Listen. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what bread is to your physical bodies, this book is to your soul. I don't think you could do a better job of describing the power of God's word than the psalmist does in Psalm 119. I mean, it's the longest chapter and the longest book in the Bible. It's 176 verses, Psalm 119. And every single one of those verses extols the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of God's word. And perhaps my favorite verse in Psalm 119, and there's so many, so it's hard to choose, but I think my favorite verse is verse 11, which says, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Do you want to live a life of victory, free from the, the grip of sin, then learn to hide the word in your heart? And notice the psalmist doesn't say, thy word have I held in my hands, or thy word have I revered in my head. No, he says, thy word have I hidden in my heart. It means it's marinated and saturated every nook and cranny and corner and crevice of his heart so that it rules and governs and guides his entire life. It's not enough to hold the word. We must make room for it in our lives. This is what reveals us to be a child of God. It's one of those definitive characteristics of God's kids. Let's look at the third one. God's kids are revealed not only by love for his son and by making room for his word, but number three, God's children listen to his voice. We see this in verse 43. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Jump down again to verse 47. He, he says, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. So that's pretty straightforward. Do you hear the voice of the Lord? It's another definitive characteristic. God's kids are familiar with the sound of the Father's voice. Now, now this one creates a little bit of, of um, tension in the room because I, I didn't hear that overwhelming, resounding yes, because there's a lot of us out here that would feel like, well, I don't hear the, the voice of the Lord. And let me just say, I don't think I've ever heard the audible voice of God. And maybe I have, but there's been times when it's so crystal clear, it's like almost like, Lord, you're in the room and you spoke, but I'm not entirely sure whether or not I've heard the audible voice of the Lord. That's only one of the ways God speaks. 
And whether or not you've heard his audible voice, what you need to come to understand is that God longs to speak with you, and he speaks in all kinds of ways. And our job as Christians is to become fluent in all of those languages. You know, most experts will tell you that somewhere between 70 and 93% of communication is nonverbal. So think about what that means. I mean, I'm communicating now, I'm using my hands, I'm using inflection, I'm using facial expressions, I'm using all kinds of things like posture and tone, and God is no different. He communicates in a multitude of ways. He communicates through other people. God has spoken to you through other people, probably today. And I'm always shocked and amazed by how often God's voice sounds exactly like my wife's voice. That's neither here nor there. God also speaks through dreams. He'll speak to you through pastors. If your heart is open and the posture of your heart is open, God will speak to you tonight. He speaks through music, one of my favorites. He speaks through nature. He speaks through circumstances. The point is we just need to listen. Jesus said this in John 10. He said, and again, I'd love it if we could read this one together out loud. This is John 10, 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, this is a really beautiful picture. In Jesus' day, it was an agrarian culture. There were lots of shepherds. And and so at night, these shepherds would all take their flocks and they would corral them together in, in one pen to keep them safe from predators and so that they could get some sleep. Now, you've got all of these sheep intermingling and you say, well, how would the following morning, how would which sheep know to go with which shepherd, and so on. And what they would do is they had a unique call, and they had names for each sheep. And the sheep were so familiar with the sound of the voice of their shepherd. And you can go on YouTube and watch videos of this. It's really cool. And they're so familiar with the sound of the voice of their shepherd that when he would just whistle, call them, give them their nickname or whatever, they would just follow the sound of the shepherd's voice. And God says, my sheep, they know my voice, and I know their name. And I think really one of the most important steps to hearing the voice of the Lord, if you want to hear the voice of the Lord, it starts with believing that God really speaks. The devil wants to convince you tonight that God doesn't speak to quote-unquote normal people. And if you really want to hear from the Lord, you need to be a preacher, maybe a missionary, you need to be somebody with some, you know, packs a punch. But the truth of the matter is, God speaks to all of us all the time. Some people say God doesn't speak like he used to. I say, has God stopped speaking or have we just stopped listening? You see, God's always speaking. And if he weren't speaking, how could he expect us to know the sound of his voice? I think, again, the problem is just that we've tuned him out. You ever been talking with someone and they just tune you out? They might even be looking at you, but they're looking through you. They're not listening. Let me ask the question another way. Do any of you have children, right? And you're telling your kids and you're talking to them and they've just totally checked out. And I think we often do the same thing with the Lord. And and so let me just give you an encouragement. If you want to hear the voice of the Lord, go. Disconnect. Unplug. Get away. Create a quiet place where you can open his word Open your heart, have a pen and a pad of paper ready to write down what he says, and then pray and say, Lord, speak 
for your servant is listening. It's a powerful prayer, and I promise you it's one that the Lord will answer. Okay, so that's another characteristic of God's kids. They hear his voice, and here's another one. God's children obey his commands. We see this in verse 51, where Jesus says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. In other words, they'll go to heaven as one of God's kids. Now, this one is pretty straightforward. We demonstrate our love for God and his ownership of us by obeying what he tells us to do. Let's read 1 John 5, 3 together out loud. This is love for God, that we obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. I love that. And notice I have underlined the word obey. I, I don't know how or when it happened, but in our culture, obedience has become a four-letter word. <laughs> And it's received a negative connotation. We've, we view it as this kind of unwilling forced decision to do something we don't really want to do. Why? Because we're afraid of punishment. And that is not at all what God has in mind, and it's not what God is after. In the, in, in the Bible, obedience is really just the flip side of love. It is the outpouring or the overflow or the expression of love. And let me just say this. Both Ingredients, obedience and love, they're both essential. If you try to love God without obeying him, then you're, you're just, it's just talk. It's hypocrisy, right? Love without obedience leads to hypocrisy. But if you try to obey God without loving him, that leads to dead religiosity, which is the same. It's just as bad. But when you combine heartfelt, heart-engaged love with heart-driven obedience in action, it leads to faith, and this is what pleases the Lord. So these are the characteristics of God's kids. The children of God, listen, love his son, make room for his word, listen to his voice, and obey his commands. Now, we could take those same concepts and reverse them and walk away with a picture of those who belong to the devil. Because Jesus, throughout this passage, is talking about these guys whose father is the devil. And so on the flip side, the children of the devil, they're people who believe the devil's lies, love this world, and carry out his murderous will. And this is what Jesus talks about in verses 44 and 45. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, I know that you know this is a modern day and age, and there's some people who think, oh my gosh, you don't really believe in the devil, the guy with the, the horns and the pitchfork and the cape and all of that. Like, oh, he's real. He's real. And he will wreak havoc in your life. And by the way, he's perfectly fine with you not believing in him. But Jesus believed in the devil, even if you don't. And he describes him for us here in detail. He calls him two things. He calls him a murderer from the beginning. And he calls him a liar. He says whenever he lies, he's speaking his native language. Here's a, a, a quick way to tell whether or not the devil is lying to you. If his lips are moving, he's lying. And that's essentially what Jesus says. And he's a murderer. When he shows up for the first time, a couple pages into your Bible there, in the Garden of Eden, 
He slithers up to Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He begins to question God's word and what God had told them. Then he begins to cast doubt on what God had told them. Then he flat out refutes what God has told them. And then he lies to them and says, oh, God's holding out on you. And if you eat of this fruit, you'll become wise just like him. And then the result of that action is death, murder. And he's murdered every person ever since. We are still experiencing the collateral damage from that decision. Satan is a liar, and he's a murderer. Now, here's what you need to know about his lies. His lies are powerless. Praise God. God's word has all authority. Amen? God has all power. When he speaks, whatever he says comes into being. That's the power and the authority of God's word. He speaks into existence things that aren't. So God has all power in his word. Satan has no authority except what you give him. You see, the moment that you embrace or partner with a lie from the enemy, what you do is you lend your authority to that lie. So it only has an impact on your life to the measure that you choose to agree with it. Because whenever you believe a lie, you empower the liar. Does that make sense? And when you continually and repeatedly believe the same lie, what happens is it develops a stronghold in your life. So how do you tear down strongholds? The Bible tells us that we take down strongholds by replacing the lie with the truth of God's word and his promises. And we need to identify this is a lie from the pit of hell. And we need to know the word so that we can refute the lie with the truth of God's word. And that's what tears down the strongholds and brings breakthrough and brings deliverance and brings victory into our lives. It's the truth that sets us free. And so throughout this whole section, Jesus has been talking to these religious leaders and he's been telling them, you know, you think you're serving God and you're telling me that God is your father, but let me just shoot straight with you. And he doesn't pull punches and he doesn't sugarcoat things. He says, in reality, God is your father. I mean, the devil is your father. If God were your father, these things would be true. And there would be evidence in support of that. And these were religious people. People that thought they were serving God, but in reality, they were serving the devil. And, and the scary truth of the matter is there are a lot of people who think they belong to God today when in reality, they too are serving the devil. But there's good news. And the good news is that the moment you accept Jesus as your savior, God instantly welcomes you into his family, and he makes you, he declares you a son or a daughter. Praise the Lord. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And it is the, the joy of our heavenly father to take sons and daughters of the devil and to rescue them from the darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light and love so that they can become sons and daughters. And God told me as I was worshiping this evening, as we were praying before him too, that there are many in here who 
who have an orphaned spirit and you feel like, I don't know whose I am, I don't know where I belong, and all my life I felt out of place, and God brought you here to this church tonight so you could hear your pastor say, there is a God in heaven who is a good, good father, and you are loved by him, and that is the truest thing about you tonight, and if you'll receive him into your heart, think about that, to as many as received him, He gives the right to become the children of God. You don't have to live with that orphan spirit any longer. You can walk out of these doors knowing that you know that you know that you belong to God and that he's your heavenly father. You say, how do I do that? You just invite him into your heart. You say, Jesus, come in. And he comes in. And so we have to finish this text in verse 53. Jesus, uh, rather, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? So this is where we're going to land. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God. So Jesus is saying, my father is God. He's the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. If I said I didn't, I'd be a liar like you. (laughs) I mean, like, Jesus, wow. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And listen, he saw it, and he was glad. Jesus is saying, when I met Abraham, he was happy to meet me. You guys keep talking about him. Abraham's my friend. And they say in verse 57, you're not 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham. Now listen to verse 58. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ooh, ooh. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. We finish with this picture of the great I am. I mean, Jesus is really getting to them. He's already disparaged their connection to Abraham and told them that their real father was the devil. Now he's claiming that he knew Abraham personally. When did Jesus see Abraham face to face? When did that happen? This is why you got to get into your word. You got to know the Bible. It happened On one occasion, in Genesis chapter 18, I think there's another story in Genesis 14 where it happened the second time. But in Genesis 18, we know for sure that the Lord met Abraham, and that chapter begins with the words, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And that chapter goes on to talk about these three visitors, maybe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who come and meet with their friend Abraham and give him and Sarah a promise, reiterate a promise about a son who would ultimately produce an heir that would become the Messiah. So they scoff at Jesus' claim about meeting Abraham, and he drops the hammer on them. You guys, you guys just aren't getting it. Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew it. Just like we understand that he was taking for himself the very name of God. I am. So let me close with this. Because the Lord was speaking to me again. And he said, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who they know me in the past tense. They know me as I was. And they're familiar with the work that I did in the Bible. And they're familiar with the work that I did in sending my son. And they're familiar with the work that he accomplished there at Calvary and how he paid for the sins of the world and that he rose triumphantly from the grave and that if they put their faith in what I did 2,000 years ago at the cross, that they'll be saved. So I think there's a lot of people out there who know me as 
I was. And he's told me, I, I think there's a lot of Christians who know me as I will be. And they're banking on the fact that when they die, they're going to be ushered into the, the glory of heaven and they're going to hear the Father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that's been prepared for you by my Father and the angels in heaven. And, and, and they're confident and they know they're going to heaven and so they're familiar with the God of I was and they're confident about a God that is I will be, but they don't yet know me as the God of I am. And there's no present application of his power in your life. Let me say it like this. If the living God were to dwell in a person, the same God who spoke into existence the cosmos, the same God who gave sight to blind eyes, the same God who raised up lepers, the same God who, who, who spoke to little girls who were dead and they came to life, the same God who healed lepers and all of that. If that God lived in a person, what would you expect that life to look like? I know what Jesus expected it to look like. He said, greater things than these shall you do. And we would expect that person's life to be extraordinary. And let me just say that the normal Christian life is anything but normal. And if your experience of God to date lacks the supernatural, if you don't know the sound of his voice, if you don't see his fingerprints on your story, if you're not experiencing miracles, then God has more for you. And that's true of all of us. There is more for us to engage in, more for us to experience, more for us to dive into. And we're just waiting in the shallow end. And God is, meanwhile, beckoning us into deeper and deeper waters. And he says, I am the God of I am. I'm not the God of the dead, but I am the God of the living. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And my story is still being written in the lives of those who surrender to me and give me their life and love me with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, I want to show myself strong on their behalf. This is what we're being invited into. Not just the God of I was, praise the Lord for the work that God's done in the past. Not just the God of the future, praise the Lord we're going to heaven. But we're here now. And we're here because God has a work for us to do. And he chooses not to act independently of us. He could do it without us. In fact, he could do it better without us. He could use angels. He could do all kinds of stuff that would be really cool. But in his infinite wisdom, God, in the sovereign plan of heaven, has chosen to partner with ragamuffins and scallywags like you and me. And he continues to use crooked sticks to draw straight lines so that the glory might go to him and not be with us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.